couple of weeks after the think tank meeting, the initial findings of the so-called SHARP study that was first presented at the 2007 ASCO meeting were published in the July 24th issue of the New England Journal of Medicine with an editorial comment by Dr. Lewis Roberts, a participant in our first HCC roundtable in the summer of 07. Dr. Joseph LeVay is the principal investigator of SHARP, and the paper notes that serafinib is a multi-kinase inhibitor that affects not only VEGFR, but also the RAF kinase pathway, which is overexpressed and activated in HCC. The drug is thought to target both angiogenesis and tumor cell proliferation. SHARP randomized patients with advanced HCC and child PUA hepatic function to placebo or serafinib 400 mg BID continuously. Median overall survival was 10.7 months with serafinib versus 7.9 months with placebo, representing a hazard ratio of 0.69. Time to progression was 5.5 months versus 2.8 months with a p-value of less than 0.001. The SHARP authors point out that in HCC, no consistent survival benefit has been observed in approximately 100 prior randomized studies over the past 30 years, including systemic and intra-arterial treatment strategies. In that respect, the SHARP trial can be viewed as the first major step in the solution of this major unmet need. The paper concludes that other novel targeted agents, such as the EGFR TKIs or Lotnib and Jafitnib, the anti-VEGF agent Bevacizumab, and another TKI, Sunitinib, warrant study in this disease, and that, as in other tumors, combined biologics may prove useful. Dr. Roberts' editorial comments on the next generation of research questions coming out of SHARP included the critical question of the role of serafinib as adjuvant therapy and the practical issue of treatment of patients with compromised hepatic function. Perhaps most challenging about this illness is that unlike other cancers, many or most patients with HCC have significant coexisting hepatic disease, and in some situations, controlling the cancer may only allow progressive cirrhosis to become predominant. Dr. Thomas presented her patient. 67-year-old Hispanic man, he's actually from Honduras, with truly cryptogenic cirrhosis, if that exists well-preserved synthetic function, the albumin is 3.9. His bilirubin was 2.5. Platelets serve low, but not terribly low. And his transaminases were only minimally elevated. He's a PS of 1. He's actually a full-time, he's a veterinarian in Honduras, and most of his symptoms are just kind of fatigue, low energy, probably from both tumor burden and underlying liver disease. I first started seeing him a year ago, May, so right after people started using serafinib. So, Bert, what would you be thinking? So this person's sort of beyond my threshold for local regional therapy for the most part. Um, he's got the bilobar disease, very centrally located. I don't think it would be infeasible to treat the patient with yttrium microspheres, but I think my preference in someone like this, the bilirubin's a little too high. Two is probably a cutoff for radioembolization where above that your chance of having liver failure post-treatment becomes relatively high. This would be someone I would prefer to treat with systemic therapy, serafinib obviously in the absence of a study or on a clinical trial. And in terms of the dose of serafinib, what would you start him on? You know, I think this is one of these gray area folks. He's still child PUA, but his bilirubin's a little high. 
This is someone I still would probably start on the full dose of 400 milligrams PID. The bilirubin's not too high. It is an interesting question. Dr. Abu Alpha's abstract of CALGB 60301 actually addressed this question formally. That study ended up coming to the conclusion that you could not give full-dose serafinib to people with elevated bilirubins, even moderately elevated bilirubins. The pitfall of that study was that when they defined dose-limiting toxicity for that trial, one of the things that they itemized as a DLT was actually a doubling of bilirubin. Turns out, possibly, that serafinib competes with bilirubin for excretion by biliary transporters. And so it may be that there is an increase in bilirubin, which is simply pharmacokinetic, not actual toxicity. And not functional. Right. So you expect their liver really isn't worse. Right. So the conclusions of that study may not have been valid in terms of dosing. So he's someone who doesn't really fall into that sharp group, but still somebody I would consider serafinib and probably treat at full dose at the outset. Dr. Finn, same question. We have a frontline study that if the patient's child's A, and I think this bilirubin would still meet the cutoff of an antibody to the VEGF receptor. Otherwise, I think full-dose serafinib would be my choice for this patient. So let's see what actually happened. So the trial that he came for was the Avastin Tarsiva one. That we allow bilirubin, I think it's only up to 1.8, so he was not eligible for that. So I started him on serafinib, and I agree with you now, 400, I would start with the 400 twice a day, but this was when the drug wasn't even labeled. So I was being conservative and started him on the half dose. So he comes back about every four months. That's really all he can manage commuting from Honduras. And he tolerated it really quite well. His local oncologist increased the dose. and he Was he having any problems with it? With this well, you know, again, I'm only seeing him as the consultant, but what I get from them is, no, he was actually cruising. Just gliding he right was through cruising, it. yes. Maybe making the doc back there nervous I, you know, I that just, he needed more drug. Could be, could be. Yeah. So actually, he ended up going into the hospital. He just, you know, had a very quick decline. So he didn't do well when the dose was? He had a lot of diarrhea. His belly, and I actually do have that data because then I was sent the data from Honduras. So he had about a eight-day admission, I believe. Not much going on. I think they gave him antibiotics. You know, it's always hard to tell. You get partial information. But they held it for four weeks. He came back to me right after the first of the year was doing well and so I restarted again at the half dose back to my conservative and so I think I've seen him in January March and then just last week just recently in terms of him clinically what's he so he's actually this is interesting it's a patient that I know everybody here has seen this type of patient that the tumor, and he's actually getting, I think, some radiographic response with some decreased vascularity. This tumor does not make alpha-fetoprotein, but the underlying liver is beginning to fail. He's getting some ascites. I recently started him on diuretics and lactulose. He was having some signs of episodic encephalopathy. So he's definitely now more of a B. Now, the contribution of drug to that, nobody knows. Would you say, Dr. Thuvalas, this history would this be unusual just based on what's going on in the liver? I think this is most likely the disease progression. Yes. You're saying the cirrhosis progressing or the tumor? Cirrhosis progressing. So it could be compatible just with the cirrhosis? I think this is one of the difficulty with this disease. This is one disease where the two conditions going at the same time. One, the underlying liver disease. Second, the cancer. So sometimes it's very difficult to treat these patients, especially the child B sort of patients. They may decompensate even without treatment. Mm-hmm. So when you start the treatment, you really don't know whether it is a treatment that decompensated them 
or it is the natural history of their underlying cirrhosis. The bottom line is when you looked at all the images, your conclusion was yes. the tumor was shrinking. Yeah. Well, I don't like to say shrinking. Things Smaller. that were identifiable, you can draw a line across it, that was hypervascular, I would say they were less bright and less well-defined. So Dr. Quo, in terms of this patient, based on what you've heard, it sounds like maybe what's happening is the tumor is coming under control, at least for a while, and now the underlying disease is sort of leading the path towards problems. That's correct. I think that's the correct interpretation. You've gotten initial control of it, but again, like so many of these hepatomas, now we have to deal with... Does that happen a lot, though? They, I mean, initially it Absolutely. sounds like... It, All the time. Absolutely. But his tumor was a problem. Yeah, I think it was causing him, yeah, the symptoms. Mm-hmm. What symptoms again? This, the Mostly t- fatigue, okay. anorexia, that, that low energy. Better? It was a little better between May and August in the first four months of therapy, yes, and measured by how much he was able to work. He was a full-time veterinarian. He was really not working much, and then by August was back about half time. So I would take that as a bit of clinical benefit. Had he been losing weight and then... He's thin. He's actually an individual. He's just been thin at baseline. He's not cachectic, but the weight was relatively stable. So you see a lot of patients then that are kind of approaching the apex of two different disease processes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Welcome to our life. Dr. Geshwin? So he got eight months of serafinib. No, he's gotten 14 months. 14 months. Almost 14 months, with a one-month break in December for his decompensation. So you're concerned that he's going to be going downhill from his mm-hmm. underlying right. disease? Yes, because now, so the encephalopathy is, it's not really debilitating, but it's the type where the wife has to remind, you know, he... Some of these patients will become confused, He's forget, getting confused, forget to take medications and have to have somebody... How confused is he right now? You know, it's very episodic. Is he working? But he'll, he goes into his clinic, but his son runs the clinic. Right. But many of them will, they think they're functioning well, but they'll also think that they're not confused so that they don't have to take their lactulose and someone has to remind them. And So it's not severe encephalopathy where they're reversing their sleep-wake cycle and not functioning and so forth, but it's clinically evident. And plus, from a prognostic point of view, I guess that's a pretty great concern that things are, I mean, you've gotten to that point. What's next? Mm-hmm. What do you see for him over the next year? Well, I don't think his survival is a year. I what mean, I think he's happen? actually exceeded his statistical survival now. You think he'll die of liver failure? Mm-hmm. And do you think, and this comes up again in metastatic disease and incurable disease all the time, weighing what you do in terms of the benefit in a palliative situation. When you look back over it, if that's what happened, that you were able to reverse the symptoms and give him, what, 6 to 12 months? Yeah, I mean, so if untreated, I mean, that's where the sharp data helps us, actually. I mean, he's now exceeded the survival even on serafinib, and he's on half dose. And that's, again, why I wanted to use this case, that I do think he got some benefit even from the half dose. I actually think that he has benefited for 14 months from the therapy. Now it gets more into that balance between should the focus be on really managing his underlying liver disease and take the serafinib away just in case it's exacerbating his liver progression. How much time do people spend in hospice in your care? I mean, you know, a few days, a few weeks, a few months. I mean, at what point? I would say it's a few weeks. Yeah. I mean, I would guess in this, I don't know, is it harder, Dr. Quo, to bring up the issue of hospice when it's not cancer, although in this situation, yeah, both. But, you know, liver disease. Is no, it, it is not. So people appreciate it? People are it? accepting it, particularly if they know they have cirrhosis and they know they're not transplant candidates. Then you explain to them a priori, first visit, 
you realize that this is a disease you're going to succumb to. And the hepatologist, at least, if when I first meet a patient with cirrhosis, I include hepatocellular carcinoma as a complication, much like ascites, encephalopathy, variceal bleeding. It is one of the complications of cirrhosis. So making the transition then I think it should be taught as it is a complication of cirrhosis. At the diagnosis of cirrhosis. A priori. So you bring it up with the patients before they have HCC. Absolutely, because otherwise getting them to follow through on screening and surveillance is not always particularly screening. They wonder why you're doing it. I want to pick back up. You're saying if you saw this patient today, you would start him with the bilirubinate 2.5 at a full dose of serafinib. And what situations do you think about starting out? Is it age, or when do you start at a lower dose a priori, or do you anymore? No, I definitely do start low. Usually, so some of them will have more liver function abnormalities than just the bilirubin. So the transaminases are, you know, in the 170s, or albumin's low-ish. And then I also use performance status. So someone who's really almost a two, but yet really wants therapy and, you know, not eligible for a trial for whatever reason or can't participate, I usually start them lower. Dr. Finn, agree or disagree? I am generally starting people at full dose, People who are clearly decompensated, I would start at 400 Q-day, not is the necessarily official, 200 yeah. BID, but 400 oh, Q-day, which is what was done in SHARP for dose reductions. But then if a patient's well compensated but just has an elevated bilirubin, I'm using a cutoff around three or so in which I would start them at a lower dose. But otherwise, like a two and a half, I would start at full dose. Now, when you start at a lower dose, do you try to bring it back up? Yeah, 400 Q-day, see them in 10 days, and if they're doing okay, then dose escalate. When you start a patient on serafinib, do you do anything preventively in terms of potential side effects, or you just wait and see what happens? I educate them on what to look for, but don't prescribe anything other than that they should have modium on hand for loose stool. And I want to hear about toxicity and certainly bring them back within 10 to 14 days. What are the things that you bring up proactively for them to be on the alert for and let you know about? Most significantly is GI toxicity, because I think that's what would lead to an admission or some more serious problem. So increase in stool frequency or watery stools, nausea and vomiting that can't be controlled. And you tell them to stop it and then call you or call you? I tell them to hold it until we talk. Anything else? You talk to them about fatigue or you wait for them to bring it up? I put it down as a list of potential toxicities, but do not tell them to worry too much about it. Anybody want to add to that list? Dr. O'Neill, anything else you talk to patients about? No, I think the other one is hand-foot because if they don't stop it, that can become severe. So that's one of those other toxicities that if this happens, stop the drug first, get a hold of me, and then we'll discuss how to deal with that. You know, capecitabine started to get used in breast cancer. We saw a lot of patients who they knew this was their cancer therapy. They didn't want to stop it, and they ended up with really major problems, sometimes even being hospitalized again. Theoretically, that's a potential issue that you want to get them to call you about early? Yeah, I mean, it's the problem with all oral oncologic therapies is some patients aren't going to take enough of it and others are going to keep taking it in spite of the fact that it's doing something bad to them. And so really just constant education is the only way to avoid those problems. What about adherence? Again, lapatinib, all these drugs now, this is out on the table. Before, we didn't have that many oral agents you always get this thing where the studies come out and say, well, the patients, you know, like in breast cancer, they don't take tamoxifen, supposedly. Then you ask the docs and the patients say, you yeah, know, I take it. What do you think about adherence in this situation, Melanie? I think the patients are pretty compliant with taking the medication. I mean, like Bert said, most of them that are able to be consented really want to be taking their 
medication. I mean, if anything, you see them probably taking it maybe a few days longer than you would have wanted them to. Dr. Geshwin? Can I just ask a question about the GI toxicity? Do you then stop or do you decrease the dose? I'll usually stop until it's resolved and then probably re-challenge them at the same dose depending on what the extent of that toxicity was. And so you wait until it's completely resolved, the symptoms are gone. 80% better. The other thing I'd like to say, and to their credit, the REACH program, which distributes the drug, is also very good at educating patients and sending material. And they actually have a number, I think. Can I just follow up on Jeff's? Because it's a very interesting question, because diarrhea is something that you actually really can manage and potentially keep them on the same dose, whereas some of the other things, so the hand-foot syndrome, what I've found is that you really can't. That's the one that if patients start to get the symptoms, they really have to stop it because it can get almost debilitating in just a few number of days. And that usually then whatever you're going to do, hold the drug, or you usually cannot go back up to the same dose. I find if they're taking enough Imodium and so forth, you can keep them on full dose. A lot of times it's they just didn't start taking Imodium soon enough or something, but that the skin things and the hand-foot syndrome, and maybe there's more dose related toxicity or we don't have anything that can treat it so you almost have to deal with it by dose reduction the emollient bag things like that do you use it yeah when they have the rash not prophylactic yeah that doesn't really seem to help with the tenderness the hypersensitivity if that gets some of the desquamation it can help it's a different skin thing from capecitabine it's definitely different from the egfr agents it's not acne I mentioned we did this molecular oncology one-on-one thing on ASCO, and we had, I don't know if you know, Mario LaCouture, who's a dermatologist at Northwestern, yeah, whose entire really career is on dermatologic side effects, his clinic, everything, of cancer drugs. And they do randomized studies. I mean, it's amazing. But my understanding is this kind of hand foot is sort of different than the Cape Cytobine yes, and the right. liposomal doxorubicin hand foot. Yes. Well, first of all, he's shown that it's actually a T-cell-mediated phenomenon, specifically with serafinib. So what I've seen is it's not really the discoloration. They'll report sort of hypersensitivity or numbness or the hands are sore, bothering them, but you don't really see anything different. Whereas capecitabine, you might actually early on see the change in pigmentation. The skin is peeling, the cracking at the folds. I think, at least in my experience, the, the serafinib hand foot can come on very quickly. So there can be a difference between, say, five days of drug and, like, three days later, they can have significant symptoms that you really have to stop the drug.